Welcome back to the Shades of Magic read-along. You have made it to book two. Because I'm an inconsistent person, the parts in this book are a lot longer than the parts in the last book, and so for some reason there are only ten of them. And yet the book is a longer book. Don't ask questions. I don't know why it came down that way. But today we're going to be covering the first three parts of A Gathering of Shadows. I am so excited. I hope you're excited too. I've been rereading these, obviously, in order to prepare, and I have not reread these books since they first came out. It's kind of a joy. <laughs> so I hope you're having fun too if you are rereading it. If you're reading it for the first time, welcome along. If you're not reading it at all and you're just using these videos as a way to refresh your memory before Fragile Threads of Power comes out, good job. Okay, I think we should just get started. We are starting A Gathering of Shadows part one, and this is set four months after the end of A Darker Shade of Magic. And we open with none other than Delilah Bard. This is one of my favorite set pieces that I've ever done. If you've listened to any of my craft talks, I'll talk about breaking a book down into kind of individual episodes that each fulfill their own individual arc. And we are going to have that arc right off the bat with Delilah Bard. Lila is in a dress, tied up, in a boat in the middle of the sea. We don't really know how she came to be that way, but it's Lila, so she probably deserved it. She's pretending to be a damsel, and she's taken on board a pirate ship. And she spins a whole tale about how, you know, pirates came aboard her ship, which was a pleasure vessel, and how she got thrown off of it, and everyone's dead, and she's wealthy, and if you can just get her back to it, it doesn't really matter. Point is, she's pretending to be a damsel in distress. It is all an act because it's, of course, an act. It's Lila Bard, who is then going to take this entire pirate ship for herself, taking down everyone on board. Turns out, it's just a bet. Her own ship is waiting, like, a little bit that way. I don't know nautical measurements, but a little bit that way. And she just wanted to prove to somebody on her ship that she could take an entire pirate ship and their bounty all by herself. She has proven this, and we find out that she is not actually uh, the captain of that other ship. She's a member of the crew. They come and they fetch her back. And she gets on board, and we meet the actual captain of that ship, whose name is Alucard Emring. Alucard, my joy, my love, one of the more important characters in this series. So excited to introduce him to you all. But what you need to know at this point is that he's a captain. He's a very rakish captain. He's delightful. Also, his name is Dracula backwards, and I didn't know that when I named him. I just thought Alucard was a really cool name. There are no vampires in this fantasy series. So we meet Alucard Emery, the rakish captain, and we promptly flashback to find out how Lila Bard actually came to be on this ship. We flashback to the same day that she left Kel, uh, on the docks in Red London when she was fishing about for a ship and she sees a ship and she's like, I'll take that one. It turns out that's Alucard's ship. And she got into a spot of trouble because she's Lila when she essentially her plan was to watch the crew of that ship depart and then sneak on board and kill the captain and take the ship for herself. Things go sideways and she actually ends up killing one of the captain's men. She gets taken back onto the ship and she finds out that the person that she killed was actually like his best thief. And she's like, well, that's great for you because I'm actually the best thief. She just kind of like leans into it. And for some reason, Alucard's like, sure, let's see what happens. You stay on the ship and either they'll kill you or like you'll get yourself killed. It's fine. Anyway, Lila ends up kind of talking her way with no magic and a very little like grasp of language because they don't all speak the same language as her um, and she ends up on this ship. 
So over the course of this first part, um, we're now at chapter four, Lila and Alucard begin to bond on the ship over the next couple of weeks. Obviously the, the crew does not kill Lila. Lila doesn't in fact kill any more of the crew. And the only thing that spared her life is the fact that she killed that crew member on land and not on sea. And also apparently that crew member was kind of a dick. So like it was okay. They weren't super angry about it. Anyway, it turns out that they both speak English, which is a language that is mostly seen as like a noble language in Red London. And so they're like, that's very curious that you both speak this language. And we also learn that Lila is really interested in learning magic. Um, as we know from the first book, Tyrion, the head, head priest, the Avanesan, has told Lila that she has magic in her, but she has to figure out how to unlock it. Alucard, we quickly discover, is a pretty powerful magician. And so she's like, I'm going to stay and I'm going to be a really good crew member. I'm going to be your best thief. And all I want in exchange is for you to teach me literally everything that you know about magic. And Alucard's like, sure. So we return to the present and Lila is happy. Like she's having a good life on the ship. And happiness is something that scares Lila immensely. She doesn't trust it. She feels that immediate inclination to be self-destructive and to run from happiness. But she's fighting that urge and she's also beginning to learn a little bit of magic. This is very exciting. She uses, most people need to articulate magic in some way. They need to have like a phrase or a spell that helps conjure magic forth, really a meditative element. And she settles on a William Blake verse, Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. And this becomes a way that she conjures magic for herself. But she also is like really holding on to the idea that one day she's going to prove to Kel that she's powerful too. So she's thinking about Kel, even though they're not in the same city anymore. And that of course brings us to part two and Kel. We discover Kel four months after the first book and he is training. He has converted uh, one of the pillars that holds up the river palace, holds up um, the palace in Red London and he's turned it into a training ground and he's pushing himself really, really hard. Like harder than usual for Kel. He seems kind of a little bit still disturbed by what happened in book one and he's channeling that into his training. Uh, Rye comes down and interrupts him and essentially convinces Kel that they are going out on the town in disguise. Now it should be said that Rye is actually quite shit at being in disguise. Like he's not really interested in being in disguise. He obviously wants to be recognized, um, but he has convinced Kel to go out with him. And Kel and Rai, remember, are bound together. So what one experiences, the other will too. That's going to become very important very quickly here. So Rai takes Kel. And we should also note, Kel doesn't want to go anywhere. Kel is like an absolute killjoy. He's an introvert like myself who would rather stay home and just like probably, for him, probably stay home and beat himself up. But for me, probably just stay home. So he doesn't want to go out. He has obviously let Rai convince him to do this. And so he's going to be one of those people who goes out and bitches the entire time about it. With this in mind, Rai takes Kel to a pleasure garden. Pleasure garden is can be many things in Red London. It can be a brothel or it can literally be a pleasure garden. It can be somewhere where people eat and drink and, and relax. It is dead winter at this point, And this pleasure garden is designed to be summer. It's a very, very ritzy pleasure garden for the wealthy and the elites of London. And so, of course, Kel hates it. 
Rai's going to exhibit quite a self-destructive streak in this book after the events of the first book. And he doesn't really know what to do with his feelings, and so he's going to drink. And he's going to put on a show. He's going to make Cal as uncomfortable as possible because that's his love language. And while they're at this pleasure garden, we hear our first mention of the Essentosh. And the Essentosh is the Element Games. This is this very, very fabulous, um, inspired by Avatar The Last Airbender and Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood and all of the animes that I grew up watching that had like tournaments. This is a tournament that brings together the three empires. Remember, they live in one empire, Arns, but there's also Pharaoh and Vesk, and essentially magicians from across the world come together and compete against each other in these element games. You don't know anything about that yet. All you know is that there are element games and they are happening and every kind of the the city is abuzz with the fact that, that London is hosting the element games because they had the last victor and the last victor's empire gets to, the last empire's victor gets to host the new games. So we hear about this and then somehow Kel and Rai split up and Kel feels pain. And it's not his pain. He feels as if Rye is in pain. He feels like someone has like hurt Rye. And he's like, oh shit, because remember Kel now feels Rye's pain as if it's his own. And he thinks Rye's being attacked and he rushes to find him. And what he finds is Rye uh, hooking up with a lovely woman who is maybe being a little rough. And Kel's pretty angry about that because he's just like, are you serious? And it's just Rai is about to get way worse in this night. So Rai is hooking up with a woman. Kel's like, I want to get out of here. Rai's like, great. I didn't even like this place. I just chose this place because I knew you would hate it. And I knew you were going to hate whatever place I chose. So now we can go to the place I actually want to go. And where they end up is a far sketchier establishment called the Blessed Waters. It is a tavern in the shawl, which is like not a great corner of London. And it turns out that Rai is there to make a bet on the Essentosh. And Kel's like, you've got to be kidding me. You have like brought me to the worst bar in the city and you just want to make a bet. And Rai's like, yeah, sure. We also in this scene overhear a group of men being quite slanderous against the king and the royal family and by extension Rai. This is definitely the kind of place where if someone was going to shit talk the royal family, it was going to be here. So they should have known better. And they, Rai probably did. Anyway. Kel wants to be aggressive in this moment and go confront those people. Rai's like, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter. It matters and it's going to come back. But we also meet Kissimir. And Kissimir is hanging out in, the, in this tavern. And Kissimir is the last victor of the Essentosh. So essentially, bad ass. Absolutely just amazing fighter. I love her. She's, she's a delight. Uh, she's very sassy and she's gorgeous. And she's a brutal magician. And like what's not to love about there. We also hear, just in passing, that Alucard, remember the the, the privateer uh, who is who's currently hosting Lilabard on his ship, that Alucard has entered the competition. And we're like, Meh. or at least we know that his name is on the roster. And we also hear, in the space of like one sentence, that Kel hates Alucard. We don't know why. We will, don't worry. But all we know is that Kel's like, I'm sorry, do we need to talk about the fact that Alucard is on this roster? And he hates it in relation to Rai. We don't know what happened, but we just know that we're not happy to hear that name if we're Kel. Even the hearing of the name pisses Kel off. So, meanwhile, uh, they find a couple lovely people to be engaging with, to distract themselves with. And 
as Kel is trying to distract himself with a young woman, he just starts thinking about Lila. Like his mind just kind of drifts towards Lila. The way that Lila's mind, Lila's mind doesn't really drift towards Kel. Lila's mind moves in a very pointed direction towards Kel, but Kel's mind drifts towards Lila as he's trying to lose himself with a woman's attention. And he comes back to himself to feel pain. And he like was like, oh, cry wolf, right? Like last time he felt pain, that's clearly Rye's. He thought like Rye's just having too much fun. But the woman that Rye was having a good time with is still there and Rye is now gone. And Kel's like, oh, son of a bitch. And so Kel goes outside and sure enough, finds Rye picking a fight with the men who said slanderous shit about the royal family. And like, this is self-destruction to a T. Rye has no magic. And he is clearly instigating a quarrel. And then Kel, and he's also very drunk at this point, which is again, par for the course. And then Kel has to intercede and essentially save Rai's ass. Kel feels a moment of like extreme temptation to be violent with these people, which is really new for Kel. Before the events of A Darker Shade of Magic, he didn't like rush to violence. But in this moment, he has to almost suppress the urge to hurt or kill these men. And it's actually Rai who pulls him back. And then he has to escort the extremely drunk prince home and put him to bed. We follow them back to the palace where Kel, who is considerably more sober than Rai, has to confront Rai's royal guards, who he literally left a note for that said, not kidnapped, out for a drink with Kel, sit tight. So the guards are not very happy that the prince left. Rai puts the prince to bed and the prince in kind of a drunken stupor just apologize. Like, he just keeps saying, sorry, 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 sorry. Like, he's obviously going through something, and he is acting out in a bad way. Kel goes to his own room after the prince is asleep and starts thinking of Lila again. And in fact, he dreams that he's with her instead of there in the palace. And he specifically, it says... Um, he put the kerchief away. It's Lila's kerchief. He's been holding on to it. Closed his eyes and waited for sleep to drag him under. When it did, he dreamed of her. Dreamed of her standing on his balcony, goading him to come out and play. He dreamed of her hand tangling in his, a pulse of power twining them together. He dreamed of them racing through foreign streets, not the London ones they'd navigated, but crooks and bends in places he'd never been and ones he might never see but there she was at his side, pulling him toward freedom. So he's thinking about Lila and Lila's thinking about him. All right, well, we're gonna cut away to White London. We have not been to White London in this book. So it's been four months since we saw the Dane twins fall um, and Holland's body cast into Black London. And we meet somebody new. We meet somebody named Oshka. And Oshka is training um, and at first glance, she seems to be a new Antari magician. She has one black eye. But something strange, which is that she's obviously gotten this power as an adult. And this is unusual because normally Antari, their power manifests around like four or five years old. So it's very weird that she has this power. And we learn that the world around her, her London, is recovering. It's beginning to wake back up. That we learn that there's a new king on the throne and the new king is who she credits with the world beginning to wake up again. And then that new king arrives and it's Holland. So we're like, how did that happen? You died in Black London. What are you doing here? When did you become king? We, you're supposed to have a lot of questions. It was one of those uh, buttons on a chapter, on a part, in fact, because we're going to start a new part, 
that should make you go, what happened? So don't worry, there are answers, they're coming. Not today, but they're coming, okay? With that, we head into part three, changing tides. Okay, we open part three, chapter one, with Kel having a nightmare. I love dreams. This is the thing, you're told like as a writer, like don't do dreams, like it's bad. But the thing is, especially in a book, where you've been away from characters for a little while and there have been plot things which have happened in the previous book, a well-placed dream is a really good way to recap some information. So in the course of Kel's nightmare, we have him seeing Lila, but we also have him being tortured by the Dane twins and we also have him like dealing with Rai's death happening over and over again. So he's reliving these different traumas in a way that is reminding us as the reader what he has gone through. So it's only like a page and a half, but a dream, a well-placed dream, I truly do feel can do a lot of work in a story to help us without feeling like an info dump to recap where we are. So he goes into the palace and he sees the royal family and they are talking with their advisors about the upcoming tournament of magic, the Essentosh. And specifically, they're talking about Pharaoh and Vesk, the other two empires, who will have emissaries staying in the royal palace as part of the tournament, since they're the hosting family. This is very important. I don't really always say that. Like, it's important because it's in the book. It's going to be important. You should probably just assume if I'm telling you in this read-along, it's probably important. Like, I'm actually not telling you every single thing that happens on these pages. I'm specifically choosing the important things. Anyway, so we're learning more about the tournament, and then Kel is informed that he needs to take a letter to Grey London, and he goes there, and he goes into George III's uh, rooms at Windsor, and... George III is not there, and he finds a piece of paper informing him that the king is dead. And this is the point where you should remember that in book one, King George III was still technically king, but he was going mad and he was confined, and Kel quite liked him. George IV now, who was the regent uh, in the last book, Kel hates. He just does not like this dude at all. He is a very greedy man who just really wants to figure out how to get magic for himself and has no respect for Kel, and Kel would rather not deal with him. Unfortunately, the king he liked is dead. And he finds himself meeting with King George IV. Kel and George IV go to the crypt where George III is, and we're reminded that George IV is really just interested in finding a way to use Kel, or th even threatens to like kidnap him and hold him there, and Kel's like, dude, <laughs> you couldn't. But uh, they also talk about magic and religion, and we learn that like, Kel is like, yeah, but religion is a thing that lives for you in theory, and like magic is a thing that I can see and touch. So who's who's right? Um, I just am always kind of interested in different philosophies on religion because it's interesting because magic is the religion of Kel's world. It just it goes by magic instead, and so they have a they have a philosophical conversation, and we're just reminded again that just Kel really hates this king and would rather never deal with him again. He says goodbye to King George III, and it's really lovely. And he takes back his red London Lynn, which is a coin um, that he always gave to George III. He does not give one to George IV. Uh, he holds on to it, but he's going to find somebody else to give it to. Hold on. So he basically leaves the king and heads off into Grey London. He just wants to, like, walk it off. He's sad. He has feelings. So many feelings. Uh, and we return to Lila and the crew of the Night Spire, and they are disembarking. Uh, they're on land for the first time in months. And this is very exciting because they have docked in the port of Sassenroche. And Sassenroche is home 
to one of the world's largest forbidden markets. Now, of course, Alucard Emery, the, the captain, tells his crew to, like, hang back, which is a thing that Lila doesn't really know how to listen to. And so, of course, Lila secretly follows Alucard into Sassen Roche, uh, the forbidden market, and she gets her first taste of magic that you're not supposed to have. And it's very exciting. And one of the pieces that she comes across is a mirror. And the mirror has two sides, and on one side it shows you what you want, and on the other side it shows you how to get it. And on the side that shows you what you want, she sees herself with an incredible quantity of magic. Uh, but she actually opts not to see the other side on how to get it. She trusts that she'll figure it out herself. Also, one side was free and the other side cost money, and she was like, I'm not going to pay for that. Um, we also... Alucard catches up with her and is like, I see you have followed me into this market. And she's like, yeah, uh, I do what I want. I'm just protecting my investment. And we also discover that Alucard has a very particular gift, a secret gift for seeing magic, meaning he can literally see the threads of magic that make up the world. We know this because he tells her that one of the stalls is warded against theft. And she's like, how do you know? Have you tried to steal something? And he tells her about this ability he has to literally see the fabric of reality and magic moving through the world. With that, um, we return to Kel in Grey London, and he is walking along just trying to feel his feels without having to go home to Red London, and somebody calls after him, and it turns out it's Ned. Remember Ned? He's the one that I kept trying to kill, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it because I really liked him. Well, it turns out that Ned now owns the Stone's Throw which Baron used to own. Ned has taken it over and he's turned it into a very overtly occult place. Time of thriving occultism. And he has taken it over and it's very like outward appearances towards the occult, but in internally he just really still wants to learn how to use magic. He has always wanted to learn how to use magic. He has always completely worshipped Kel. He's very excited that Kel is there. And he tells Kel that he has something very special for him. Remember Kel used to t like love trinkets. And he goes to fetch Kel a special trinket. But Kel has given up that life after the events of A Darker Shade of Magic. And he leaves before Ned returns with whatever the thing is that he found. He does, however, leave that red London coin on the counter as a gift for Ned. Because he's a big softy. Lila learns more about the Essentosh, uh, the element games, and who can enter, which is anyone. Uh, Ed Tav, who's one of the members of the crew, says if they're good enough to get a spot. And there's also a massive financial prize, so it's not a big surprise as to why the crew of the Night Spire is now headed to London so that Alucard Emery can compete. And that's where we're ending today. So to find out what happens next, go and read your copy or just tune in next week. And I cannot wait to tell you what happens as our characters collide again in the lead up to the acid